Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Morning. I am thankful to have the privilege to be here this weekend for the conference, and it's been a delight. I, I know that uh, <clears throat> you were not expecting for me to preach this morning. You also won't be expecting the text that I am preaching on, uh, but I want to thank you for having us into town, for serving us in many ways encouraging and strengthening us in our work of church planting in Cincinnati and also now finally uh, giving me the joy and privilege to preach to you. We're going to be looking at sin. We're going to be answering the question how to deal with sin from beginning to end. And that's a big question and so we're going to read a lot of Bible but it's all just one chapter. One chapter from the Old Testament in First Chronicles. One morning I was reading this for family devotions. And I said, this chapter is a sermon. <laughs> sometimes sermons are easy to write and sometimes they're hard to write. This one practically wrote itself. Uh, so... The reason I tell you that isn't to brag about how easy it was to write this sermon. The reason is because I want you, when you're reading the Bible, to pay attention to what you're reading so you can see what there is to learn and apply it to your life. Because any one of you reading this chapter should have been able to pick out quite a bit of what I'm going to say this morning from this passage of the story of David, King David, taking a census. He's a good example and he's a bad example in this. So we're going to see King David. We're going to use him as both good and bad example this morning. And we're going to read the entirety of 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So turn, if you would, to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Remember, we're thinking about sin as we read this from the, from the beginning, before David sins, all the way through him sinning to how he deals with it in the end, all right? Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my Lord the King, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David, and all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now Please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, 
and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell, and God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Oh, Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And Ornan was threshing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me the site of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I'll give the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. The Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifice there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering, were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So, if you were here earlier for Sunday school, you saw, or you heard rather, from Andy teaching us that God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness. And that's where we're going. We're, go- we're going right back into that topic if you're here for Sunday school. Denying ungodliness is where we need to start. And remember, we also sang about how God is our righteousness. Oh, God of my righteousness. Right? And so that's where we'll end. We'll come back to that song. Uh, but what do we see at the beginning of this passage, we see King David, the great king, the man after God's own heart, deciding to number the people, and it was a sin. Now, how many of you wonder why that is a sin for him to take a census? Have any of you ever wondered that or wonder it now, now that I bring it up? 
Okay, well, <clears throat> it doesn't say, does it? It was a sin because it displeased God. When we do things that displease God, that's a sin. So, is there anything wrong with taking a census per se? Counting people. No, no, there's, there's nothing wrong with that per se. Is there anything wrong with playing in the basement of your house per se? Your kids, can, you know. No, there's nothing wrong. Unless you don't want them to. In which case, if they go down there and play, they were wrong. That was sin. Right? So David does something which was displeasing in God's sight. It was sin. Now, sin is that simple at its core, right? But understanding sin, of course, is much more complicated than that because it deals with us on the inside. And we are not simple. We're, our hearts deceive us. <laughs> and so, let me ask you the question, why did David sin? Why did David decide to count the people? That was the sin. Why did he decide to go ahead and do that? Well, again, the passage doesn't say. We know Satan was involved, right? And so we know that temptations come to us externally fighting against principalities and powers, But why did David think this was a good idea? We don't know. I have, I have a lot of theories about why. I'm going to tell you about a couple of them, not because it matters, but because I want you to see yourself in King David. Okay? Here he is. He decides to count the people. If you were a king, why would you decide to count the people? Well, if you were a king like Nebuchadnezzar, you would do it because you wanted to see how great you were as a king, right? So, if David decided to seek his own glory rather than the glory of God, he could do that by taking a census. And that would be sin, wouldn't it? That sinful desire of wanting himself to be glorified, wanting to know how great a man he was as king, and wanting other people to know how great a kingdom he ruled, that desire for himself to be glorified, that's a bad desire. It's a sinful desire in and of itself. Now, the text doesn't say he had that desire. I'm just, I'm just saying here's one example of a way that this could happen, right? Right? Do you see that in yourself? Sinful desires that lead you into these actions and the actions are therefore sinful. Another example of uh, a way that this could have happened is that King David could have been seeking comfort and security. Now, seeking his own glory, that's a wicked desire, right? If that was what drove him there, the desire itself was wrong. We're to seek God's glory, not our own. But desiring comfort and security, is there anything wrong with wanting comfort and security? No, there's not. We are commanded to seek our comfort and our security in the Lord. But do you see how desiring comfort and security outside the Lord could allow David to fall into sin? He's a king. He's constantly fighting. He's got surrounding nations that want him dead. How's he going to survive? Well, he needs to know whether he's got enough men to defend him. 1,100,000 here and what was it, 470,000 over there, right? And some of them didn't even get counted. Is that enough men to defend, to protect David, to, for him to keep expanding his kingdom? Is he able to take comfort and security in that? No. Because his only comfort and security is the Lord. 
If we seek good things idolatrously outside of God, they become sinful in their, in their outworking. So the desire for comfort and security, again, nothing wrong with it per se. It's good. We should be seeking it. We must seek it in the Lord. It was God who defended him, not his armies. He doesn't need to seek comfort and security in the number of people in his army. He has God on his side. Now, the text doesn't say that's what was going on in David's heart. What was the desire in David's heart that led him into sin? Was it a wicked desire? Was it a good desire that he sought outside of God and made an idol? We don't know. But what are the desires in your heart that lead you into sin? The desire for comfort is such such a temptation for me. I love to be comfortable. What do you desire? It may be bad. It may be good. Both of those we have to deal with. We have bad desires in our hearts. We have good desires in our hearts that we twist and make bad. It could have been any number of things. I could, you know, we could hypothesize all day long about the ways that, that desires within David's heart could cause him to be tempted to sin, right? This is where sin starts. It starts with desires in our hearts. And then it becomes the temptation. The temptation is, in this case, you know what, I'm going to find out how many people there are. And that's when he makes that decision, he has decided to what? To sin. The temptation has given birth to sin. The desire is, is now full-born, and it's, it's led to sin, and so David decides he's going to sin. Now, right here, you've, you've all been here lots of times. Sin doesn't accidentally happen to you. You decide to do it. At that moment when you decide to sin, was the temptation too great for you? Well, yes, in a sense, you, you succumbed, so it was too great for you, right? But was it, was it too great for you? No, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, and he will provide a way of escape. So David is given here exactly what God promises to give to us, a way of escape. And the way of escape for David was a man, a man named Joab. Joab, that great hero of the faith, right? How many of you love, just, just love, have, have Joab, you know, memorize all the things that Joab did and think, man, I wish I could be like him. Well, if you don't know, Joab is not a good role model, okay? Joab is the guy who, when King David is at the end, of, he's, he's, first of all, he's King David's commander of his army, all right? For all of, all of the story of David, Joab is his commander. All of it. And at the end of his life, King David is dying, and he's turning over the kingdom to his son Solomon and he says, you know how your voice changes when you're weaker and you're older? Solomon, make sure you deal with Joab. And so Solomon executes Joab. This is because Joab was a wicked, wicked murderer. Every time David turned around, Joab was killing somebody that David wanted to live. And Joab is the one that God uses to call David back from sin, to provide a way of escape. When you decide to sin, 
when you, when you have committed yourself to your course of action and God provides a way of escape, I want you from now on to notice it. You cannot go through life not realizing that God has provided a way of escape when you're in your temptation and, and you've decided to sin. You must notice because until you notice that there's a way of escape, you can't take the escape exit. Do you see how important this is when we're dealing with sin and temptation in our life? We've, David is a bad example. He gives himself to some desire in his heart. This lust turns into action. He decides he's going to go into sin. And then God gives him a way out. And what does David do? Nevertheless, the word of David prevailed over Joab. Well, you don't say. He's king. But he could have changed his mind and say, you know what? You're right, Joab. That was a dumb idea. I shouldn't do that. And that's what we all need to do when we are given the way of escape. Now, what can the way of escape be? Is it always some wicked man coming to you and saying, don't be evil? <laughs> no, that, that's a helpful thing. That's a helpful thing, though, isn't it? When, when somebody who's clearly wicked <laughs> comes to you and says, don't be evil? Oh, right, yeah. Ouch. But of course, there's an infinite number of ways that God provides us escape from our temptation out of sin. These escape exits are, we need to learn to love them. Not just notice them, be like, where's the escape exit? I'm heading down into sin. I know there's an escape exit. I'm going to take it. I'm going to end this, this bad plan and, and switch to a good plan. David doesn't, though. He doesn't take the escape exit. It could have been... I, I, love, I love noticing the, the ways of escape that God provides. And I want you to really begin noticing them in your own life. I have had so many strange things be the thing that is the way of escape. And I, of course, like David, often I do not take them, which only compounds my guilt and sin, right? But what, what a beautiful thing it is to see God fulfilling his promise to provide a way of escape out of sin, right? You've seen it with kids when they're, they know what they're doing is wrong, right? I, I just told her that she could not have a cookie. Why is she on the counter with her hand in the cookie jar, right? And... And she's up there and she thinks she's getting away scot-free and all of a sudden she hears the step into the room or the, the door, the, cl the click of the latch, right? And it's like, ah! <laughs> the, the hand jerks back, right? You hear, you, you, you have been startled in your sin before, haven't you? I've been startled when I've made a decision. Like, you, you've just decided, I, I think I'll sin now. I, I think I'm going to do this thing that I know is wicked and wrong and I shouldn't do. I'm going I'm to do this now, and all of a sudden a bird flies into the window behind you. Boom! Huh, what was that? Oh, that was the escape exit. This is handy, isn't it? I'm going to stop doing that. Or you get a text message from your mom, right? You're off at college, you haven't heard from her. Well, okay, maybe. Your dad. You haven't heard from him in two weeks, and all of a sudden you get a text message, right? <laughs> oh, I remember something about my dad telling me to be good. For 18 years, he was telling me this. <laughs> And of course, all the more if he's asking you about the thing that you just decided you're going to do, right? 
but it doesn't have to be. You know, God provides ways of escape through people, through nature, through the, the, the wind and the rain, the storms, the birds, the animals, you, you know, through uh, the power going out. You, you name it, there's escape exits all over the place, reminders that come to you that right at that moment that you shouldn't. They make you think of something besides sin. You've, all you're thinking about is, I want, I want, I want to sin. And, and something makes you think about something else? That's God providing an escape exit. Jump. Get out while the getting is good. Don't go back to thinking, I want, I want, I... No, get out. Take the escape exit. It's for your safety. But stupid David, <laughs> he doesn't take the escape exit, does he? Now, how many of you, you know, <clears throat> have noticed the escape exit and it's been explicit, like, Somebody saying, no, that would be wicked, don't do that. And you say, I'm going to do it anyway, like David. Have you, anybody besides me ever done that? Okay. How does it feel afterwards? Do you feel good after you sin? No, you feel miserable. You feel miserable. And this is the position that we find ourselves in so often. We, along with David, just like David, have done the wrong thing given ourselves into some desire, twisted it, made it evil. It is an evil desire. We decide we're going to do it. We're doing it. We were given escape exit. We don't take it. We're, now we're in the sin. We've done the sin. And we make it that far, and all of a sudden it's like, ugh. I don't like this. It tasted good and then it was bitter going down, right? The sin, we knew what we were doing was wrong. We went into it. We feel terrible. And what do you do at that point? Well, now for the first time we have David being a good example David repents. David repents. What does he say? David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. This is not idiot, 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 idiot. Why are you such an idiot, idiot, idiot? Now, some of you have done that for months on end after sinning. Oh, I'm so stupid, stupid. That was such a dumb idea, dumb, stupid me. That's not repentance, okay? That is not what David does. David, yes, he says, I have done very foolishly. And you can, you can say that till you're blue in the face, but without adding what he says first, which is, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing but now please take away the iniquity of your servant not keep me from being such a stupid person in the future I have sinned greatly take away the iniquity from me that is repentance and yes the sin was foolish I do not object to you saying, I was so stupid. But you better have something more than that that you're saying, or there is no repentance. And so we've made it to the end of the chapter, right? David repented, and all was well, and it was a happily ever after story, right? Wrong. David is disciplined. He's, he still has consequences for his sins. It's exactly what we didn't want to notice. 
exactly what we didn't want to hear, exactly what we don't want to have happen to us, that after we repent, after we confess our sins, that there are still consequences for our sins. If you knew that there were going to be consequences, even though you repented, would you still repent? If you would not still repent, you aren't repentant. Do you understand? Repentance is, come what may, I was wrong. God, in his great love, still disciplines us. There are still consequences for our sins. Not all the time, not often as drastic as the consequences that we see here, but listen, throw yourself on his mercy. Come what may. Where else can you go? Sitting there kicking yourself and calling yourself stupid is not going to make you feel better. The only way out is repentance. Knowing that, yes, discipline and consequences from the Lord are often part of our life after we repent. Flee to God in that moment even though you're worried about what the consequences of repentance are going to be. Even though you're, you, you, know, you, you think, wait a minute, there, there could still be, I don't, this isn't a get out of consequence free card, repenting? No, it's not. Repent anyway. It's the only way out of the pit. How are you going to deal with your sin? Deal with it by fleeing to God. That's what David does. What a wonderful example he is here. And, and then... What does God say? Okay, now go outside, son, and cut yourself a switch that I will use on you. Pick. What, how many of you have ever had to actually go out and do that, been sent out? A fair number. <laughs> how many of you Raise your hand again if that was a pleasant task, deciding which branch you were going to use. Is that pleasant? Do you, do you enjoy getting sent outside and choosing which branch is going to be used on your rear end? There's this very skinny one, and it'll... Ow, it hurt. Now, are you testing it? Did you test it on yourself? You know, like, oh, that one's... Stings like a bee, and let me try this thick one. Ow, that one hurts deep. You know, it's just, there's nothing in between that doesn't hurt, right? They all hurt. This is the punishment choice that David has given. What is the consequence going to be for your sin? Choose for yourself. Are you going to be grounded for a week, or are you going to paint the house? <sighs> They're both bad. Choose your, 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 your discipline. Well, we can learn something from David here, okay? Because we, we do actually face choices in what the consequences are going to be. It's, uh, usually it looks different. It's not like, okay, now you pick. What are the consequences? You, but you have an idea. Okay, well, um, how I go about repenting of this is going to, uh, you know, who's going to hear about this first? Mm, you know, there, when am I gonna? When am I? When am I gonna tell so and so? Now, well, here's what we can learn from David. David chooses not the three-year punishment, and not the three-month punishment, but the three-day punishment. And my recommendation to you is, if you can get it over with quickly, do it. Get it over with quickly. This is not thus saith the Lord. This is just me saying, David looks awfully wise to me here. <laughs> I recommend you follow his example. Get it over with. 
But there's also something that is clearly good and wise for us beyond just, I like getting it over with quickly. And that is, he casts himself on the mercy of God and says, let it be God who punishes me. Why would you say, let it be God who punishes me? Isn't it God who's punishing him, disciplining him, having these consequences come regardless? Well, yes, but let it be the hand of God himself directly. Why? Not because that somehow makes it spiritual and there won't be any physical consequences because it's clear there are still going to be physical, right? It's still going to actually really hurt. It's not like, oh, I'll just bury, I'll just tell God and no one else will have to hear about it and that'll be that. That's like you pretending as though you can come up with a way where you can guarantee there will be no consequences and let's go back and remember that means you're not repenting, okay? That's not what I mean when I say choose God. I mean choose the person who loves you most. Not the person who has the lightest hand. Not the one that you think you can get away. You know, okay, so, yeah, God said I would, it, would take, it would be three years of me being driven before my foes, but at least I'd have a fighting chance, right? I mean, I can wield my sword, and maybe we'll get lucky, and no. He throws himself on God. There's nothing that he can do. He just says, okay, it's, it's going to be God. It's going to be his hand. Dad, I... I know it hurts when you spank me, but I, you love me more than anybody else in the world. I, I don't want it to be anybody but you. David takes responsibility for his sin. He calls it what it is, this is repentance. He calls it what it is. He, he asks for forgiveness and he says, I want it to be, I want it to be from God. And so the plague, the hand of the Lord comes and the people are dying, and how does David respond? Is he going around checking the castle? Like, how many of my kids have died? How many, you know, no! He is out there saying, no, God! No, God, stop! I want it! What have these sheep done? Father, let it come to me. I want the consequences on me. You fathers should be praying that. God, not my children. Don't let the consequences fall on my children. I want it on me. Let me bear the pain. Let me bear the consequences. And let me tell you something. That is totally biblical, right, good to pray, but your sin always, always affects others. You cannot escape from your sin causing bad consequences on other people. It's always there. Every time you sin, you have harmed other people, not just yourself. And so, of course, we pray, let, let me be the one let it come on me and my father's household. And what is David doing there? He is taking responsibility for his sin. When you think you're repenting and you are giving, but you know, there were these extenuating circumstances that caused, I mean look, David's like, well, but you, you understand, I, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it, but you understand the devil, right? The devil, Satan himself, came and, 
No, Satan, Satan is not brought into the picture in David's repentance. David just says, it was me. It was me, it was me, I did it. There weren't, there weren't other people who were at fault. This is not repentance when we are pushing it off and trying to lay the responsibility, the fault on others as a justification for why it wasn't that bad or why we, we couldn't escape from it. That's not repentance until you own it as your own and say, it was me, I did it. You aren't repenting. And then he seeks to take the consequences for himself rather than the rest of the people. Now, again, repentance. This is an awful lot of dealing with sin is repentance, right? So let me ask you a question. Have you repented when you are looking to try to get the consequences of your sin to fall on other people? We do that, right? Well, but aren't you going to spank him too? Oh, you were claiming to be repentant a second ago. Let me spank you again. You're not repentant. <laughs> You're looking for the consequences to fall on somebody else? Really? This is what repentance looks like? No. When we don't want others, no, Dad, it was me. You know you, <laughs> you, know you have a repentant son, right? When he's going, no, don't spank Samuel, it was me. <laughs> They were both out there punching each other in the face, right? They're both black and blue or whatever. You, know? it's like you saw them swinging branches at each other in their anger and their wrath, and the one is going, it was my fault. I want, a, I want the punishment. That's repentance. You know very well they were both sinning. But who is... And, and look, the people... The people were evil. If we look at the other passage where this is talking about it, it says that... The, the, God was displeased with Israel, therefore this happened. And yet David, what, is, what have they done? It's me. This is repentance. Taking it for yourself, owning the sin, and seeking that the consequences would not go out to other people, but they, they would come to you. And the last part of repentance, of course, is obedience. You have not repented until you have turned away from your sin and you are now obeying. And we see again David as a good example here because what does he do? God says, build an altar. He goes, yes. And he, he obeys. But now let me, let me point out that obedience always has a cost to it. Does it not? Is obedience ever easy? And what is the cost here for David? The cost is 600 shekels of gold to get the sight and the animals. He's not willing to let the cost be borne by somebody else for his obedience. It is not somebody else's responsibility to bear the weight of your repentance in obedience, okay? It is not anybody else's responsibility to make you obedient by paying the cost of obedience for you. If you need accountability in your fight against sin, it is not his job to hold you accountable and call you every day. If you need accountability, bear the weight, the cost of calling every day. You bear the cost. David is unwilling for anybody else to bear the cost of his obedience. Why? Well, because he's repentant. He's repentant. This is what we have to be repentant. 
We must repent like David. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I can't be expected to give up that, that would be too great of a cost for me. You are unwilling to turn away from the sin to obedience and therefore you have not repented. You have not turned away. You are unwilling to pay the price of obedience. You aren't repentant. Now, I know I keep hammering this. In this case, you're not repentant. In this case, you're not repentant. If you do this, you're not repentant. And, and, and that can get old, <laughs> Right? You keep hearing all the ways that you're not repentant, that you're, that you're turning away from not, you know. But listen, you, you want to know how to repent of your sin, don't you? This is how. This is, the, this is the last step. You turn away from the sin into obedience and it doesn't matter what the cost is. How many of you have 600 shekels of silver to pay for the cost? Or gold, I mean. None of us. I don't think. I don't know how much a shekel is. It's a lot of gold, I think. But David is adamant that he will pay that price. He will pay the full price. No, I'm not going to let you pay the price of my obedience, Ornan. Of course, you know Ornan. Ornan's like, yeah, you can have it. David is, No. No, I will, I will bear the cost of my repentance. I'm not going to offer to God his obedience. I'm going to offer to God my obedience. And so David makes the sacrifice, and it's gone. The animal's gone, the wood is gone. And you say, well, he's left with the threshing floor. I'm like, yeah, he's too scared to go there to seek the name of the Lord. He doesn't have, a thre- he doesn't have some great thing at the end of this, right? <laughs> it goes up in flame to the Lord, and it's pleasing to God. The cost, that sacrifice. Are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of obedience? That will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when it goes up in flame, you know that God has accepted it. It's gone. Now that sacrifice, I don't want you to be confused, okay? The, the sacrifice that David makes is a, it points forward to Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for our sins, right? And so the sacrifice does not pay for the sin. The sacrifice that David makes is his obedience in turning away from the sin. Do you follow me? It is not that somehow David is is cleansed because he gave up enough. Giving things up cannot cleanse you. You will always have to give things up to obey, though. And that's what David did. He gave it up in order to obey. And the sacrifice that paid the penalty for his sin was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. No bull, no ox, no lamb. Jesus Christ the Lamb of God, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And what was the prayer of David? King David, a man after God's own heart, he said, let it come on me and my father's house. And God said, that's right. Jesus Christ, son of David, he will bear the price. And until you own that sacrifice for yourself, you are dead in your sins. You have not been cleansed and it is impossible for you to repent like David. 
but glory of glories. God answered David's prayer. And he sent his son to die for our sins, and that is the ultimate dealing with sin. It has been dealt with. Have you owned that sacrifice for yourself? You can't buy it. You can't give up things for it. You may only turn to God for it. You say, I trust in the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and nothing else. Nothing else. And he forgives you. That's the only thing better in this, in this story than the fact that he gives you a way of escape. <laughs> and it's infinitely better. Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, dead because of your sin. That's where your hope your only hope is in life and in death. Nothing else. Nothing else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a loving Father. You are the one who disciplines us and you are the one who has given us a conscience you are the one who provides us a way of escape when we're going against our conscience. And you are the one who sent your own son, your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die so that our sins may be forgiven. Forgive us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.